Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. In this conversation, recorded in September of 2019, I speak with one of my most cherished older brothers and colleagues in this work, Dave Pollard. Dave's blog, How to Save the World, is one of the few that I read regularly. We've titled this conversation, Taking the Larger Arc. And Dave lives on south coastal British Columbia, on Bowen Island. We begin with one preview. In thinking about today, you've inspired me to think about the fact that I basically operate subconsciously with a three-way switch. Say more. Um, that the mindset and the way of interrelating with other people, I have to get straight in my mind. Am I dealing with people who are still in denial about collapse or yeah. people who, are, who have accepted that collapse is happening mm-hmm. but aren't in a non-dual space? Mm-hmm. And then the third switch, the newest one, is, this, is the people who kind of, um, share or are intrigued about this idea of non-duality. And I just, I just have to be, in order to manage the cognitive dissonance, <laughs> I have to know which of those three settings the switch is at yes, whenever exactly. I'm relating to other people. Yeah. So I'm, I'm content to work with whatever setting of the switch works for the audience. The conversation begins. The, the concept or the words post-doom came because Connie and I were in Canada and um, we had just met with Paul Beckwith and Paul Traferka both. Uh, That'll and- do it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Fellow and- Canadian doomers. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. Why don't you just jump in and share how you went from whenever you thought that things were just going to always be progressing to where you are now, anything that you can share that would be of value to those who are in that process somewhere and could really learn from an older brother on the path. Wow. Oh gosh. Even he found that difficult or whatever. So. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess unlike most people, my sense of grief started early in my life. Uh, I just didn't, know what it was about. I had an intuitive sense in my 20s, and that was 40-something years ago. How old are you? I'm 68. Oh, good. Okay, so you're one year older than Connie. Good. Yep. Um, And so the sense of grief was kind of intuitive. I couldn't put my fingers on it. I went through long periods of depression, um, and my way of coping with it at that time was to meet somebody who needed me to help raise a family. Uh, and I have two amazing stepkids who I spent a uh, better part of 20 years trying to help to bring up well. And during that time, I more or less forgot about the environment, which I'd, I'd been an environmentalist in my 20s. Um, I forgot about my despair. 
And it was only once the kids were grown up and I'd reached the stage in my career at which um, I could afford to take some time to do things that were not work-related and were important to me that I kind of got back to it. And this happened at the beginning of the blogging era um, in 2002, 2003. And so I had the opportunity to kind of chronicle uh, this reconnection with what's going on in the world, trying to figure out how the world really works. Um, and, uh, And so that very quickly reconnected me with that sense of grief. Uh, But I found almost as quickly within a couple of years by doing a huge amount of reading uh, and study and ruminating out loud on the blog about what all this means, I found that instead of uh, the grief deepening, it was, I was actually liberated from it because the realization, and if, if anybody wants to follow the, the path that I took, I got a post on my blog called the Save the World Reading List, which has about 70 books in it all together, but 15 of them are, are highlighted as being the ones that were most important in my particular journey. Well, actually, yeah, I mean, I've seen that list and I actually, many of them overlap with my own. Sure. Uh, and in fact, just as a context, I first learned about your work only like two years ago and became just enthralled. I, started, I read six or seven uh, of your posts and then reached out to you and said, hey, I, you know, you're amazing. Um, and uh, could you identify like your favorite favorites? Uh, right. Because I want to record audio record it. I've recorded a few and still want to get back to recording more. Um, but if you could just sort of just off the, off the cuff or, you know, just share who have been these, some of the authors, uh, some of the significant seminal influences for you in this process. Yeah, I think probably if, if I had to pick just two or three, I've, I've always been a lover of science. So I started this exploration for finding out how the world really works with the scientific inquiry. Uh, and the book that really hit home for me was uh, Stephen Jay Gould's book uh, called Full House, uh, which basically said that the universe is indifferent to us as a species, that there is no th- such thing as progress, that the likelihood of uh, bipeds, humanoids emerging on the planet was uh, astronomically small, just an accident of nature. Uh, and I found that intriguing, it, you know, it, our, the hubris that we have that were the crown of creation. So that was kind of what really got me going on it. And then I guess probably the second one that really hit home was a book called Straw Dogs, not to be connected uh, in any way with the movie of the same name. Uh, it's a book by a British philosopher, John Gray. And it basically, its thesis was not only can we not save the world? And as you know, my blog is entitled How to Save the World. And I only meant it partly tongue in cheek when I started it. It's a great way of getting a lot of strange emails from people all over the world. I'm sure. Yeah, so when I read that, not only did he say we cannot save the world, but he said there is no need to do so, that the world will survive just fine without us or despite us. Um, and 
rather than that getting me into a more despairing state, that was actually what liberated me. I remember <clears throat> the night that I discovered that book, I picked it up in a bookstore in Montreal when I was on a conference and I stayed up all night. I just, I, I was on my feet reading this, pacing around the hotel room that I was staying in in Montreal and kind of nodding and saying, holy shit, this is what I have always believed that, but he's actually articulated it in a way that makes sense to me. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to just to jump in real quick. I found that John Gray has written several books, uh, really critiquing the notion of right. human-centered progress in, in really beautiful ways, powerful yep. ways. And I guess those are probably the two biggest ones. What's nuanced my view, I think, since then is that I believe John Gray, I don't know if he was brought up in a Catholic family or something like that, but he has a very doer way, a doer view of the planet. And I guess probably the third book that helped nuance my thinking on all of this was a book that was actually written back in 1992 uh, by a very prescient Canadian uh, by the name of John Livingston called Rogue Primate. And his argument in that book is that we are not by nature a violent and destructive species. What has made us that way is the fact that we domesticated ourselves. We were too smart for our own good. And we domesticated ourselves to the point where we have become dependent upon, desperately so dependent upon the existing uh, global industrial culture. Um, so we can't walk away from it. We have to keep using it. We have to keep defending it. Um, and it's that domestication, just the, the same way that a domesticated animal is no longer able to fend for itself in the wild and becomes a little bit desperate, a little bit overly dependent, um, you know, to the point where at dinner time there are these desperate meows as if it's life and death. I think wild creatures don't have that dependency. And so that's, I guess, probably the third thing. It is, it has moved me to the point now where I no longer hold anyone to blame. And I appreciate now that we're all doing our best. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so those are kind of the three books out of the 70 that were the most important in my journey. And they've pretty well gotten me to where I am now. It's the first time that I ever learned of that perspective was from Dolores LaChapelle, a deep ecology writer, mm -hmm. and, uh, and her, you know, turning me on to Paul Shepard. And um, it was, and then also more recently, uh, Rick Reese, Richard Adrian Reese, who writes yeah. a blog uh, on what is sustainable. Uh, and he does a great review of just, you know, like 200 plus books related yep. to, um, you know, genuine sustainability. So Dave, what I'd love to do is take a few minutes and go through because you responded in a uh, in a really thorough way, uh, just bullet points. But Connie and I loved your response to the initial, I think, six questions that we posed in the uh, the email that we sent out for scheduling, and I loved your responses. So I want you to, you know, go a little deeper into uh, into that. So the first question was, what does post doom mean to you? Like, is that language that resonates? Uh, uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, so uh, what I love is that you, you mentioned that you'd had no sense of doom, that your sense that we're in a slow moving collapse. Um, 
So anyway, so say anything you want about that, that sense of like, what does even the meme post do mean to you? Yeah, I think the reason that I prefer the word collapse is that it, it's a barbed term, but it needn't be. If you look at the, at the entire history of the planet, um, collapse is a constant. It's a never ending natural part of everything that happens. Um, and I think we have become far too attached to this civilization culture that we live in that really hasn't served us very well. Um, and we're now addicted to it. Yeah. And to me, collapse is going to force us out of those ways of acting and being, require us to become more independent of this civilized, domesticating culture upon which we all rely now. And I think that will be a perilous process, but I think it's perfectly survivable. Um, and I think it will be exhilarating for a lot of us to kind of actually discover what it's like to really live, to be really alive and have to use your wits and everything that you bring um, in order to be able to, uh, to thrive in a, in, a, in a real culture. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, what we were trying to get at is, or where that came from is that so much, not so much the outer doom in terms of civilization, because civilizational collapse, and not just civilizational collapse, but species extinction and things like that are natural. It's an inevitable process. Mm -hmm. But the doom is the more the sense of the inward interpretation, the feeling state of when you recognize that things aren't continually progressing and that things are now inevitably contracting and collapsing, how does that feel? And, and, and it, right. often, it often does feel like doom, especially those of us in the West. Um, and so that's sort of where that, uh, where that came from. Well, that's um, interesting because um, you have read, I think, A Short History of Progress oh, yeah. by yet another Canadian. Yes, exactly. And, and, and he should probably have put the word progress in quotation marks because yes. part of his argument is that there's no, there really is no such thing as progress. It's kind of a random walk. Um, but my, my immediate reaction to the term post-doom was, uh, take the larger arc, the longer arc, um, not only in terms of the universe and the fact that we're just a tiny part of that, but in terms of the overall history of the planet and think beyond. I remember reading part of my great-great-grandfather's diary. Um, he lived in a pretty uh, gloomy time, the robber baron era of the 1890s, and he lost the family farm um, to the robber barons um, and because uh, he couldn't pay his debts, like most farmers of the time. Well, of course. Um, and he said in his diary that the hardest part for him wasn't the personal struggle that he was dealing with, but the despair that his children might not have it at least as well or better life yeah, than what he had. And that's the whole myth of, myth of progress kind of in a nutshell. We can put up with almost anything if we figure our kids are going to benefit from that and they're going to have an easier life than we have. Right. So my arc is millennia long. And if you ask me when I would like to live in any time in history, if I go through a time machine, my answer would be several millennia into the future. Um, because while I think that you know, the collapse of, 
our industrial civilization is going to be, as I say, perilous, exhilarating, and difficult. I think at the same time, what will come after that will be, by necessity, a whole diversity of different human cultures. Assuming that abrupt climate change doesn't make it very difficult, if not impossible, for mammals to survive. That's possible. That's, yeah. And that's, that's always a possibility. I right. mean, uh, some of the more extreme uh, climate science scenarios now saying that there basically won't be life beyond bacteria. So, so that's the larger arc that I take. And yeah. maybe it won't be humanoids. Maybe it will be some other species that will be after us. I, I love Lauren Isley's term um, that I use on my business cards. That's after us, the dragons. Um, because his argument is that if humans end up destroying the earth, the most likely successors to us will be flying creatures. Um, insects and birds are very successful at dealing with getting above and beyond, above, up and above the, uh, the climate effects that uh, will affect those of us who are stuck on the ground. I sometimes say that whether our species goes extinct in five years or five million years, it's most likely going to be in that time frame. And that's not very long in <laughs> right. a, a cosmic time frame. And exactly. so, you know, species will come and go. And it's like Connie and I have had to downshift our sense of what gives us like, oh, as long as that happens, I can feel good. You know, that's downshifted right. a couple of times. Connie's now at the place of knowing pretty much, pretty confidently that ferns, moss and moss piglets tardigrades ferns moss and tardigrades they're the likelihood that they're going to make it no matter how bad you know hot house earth gets whatever is pretty strong yeah. and and then life has these processes that allow for the tree form if if things get so bad that even trees most trees yeah. go out the tree form will reemerge and sort of convergent evolution will happen and Two, two more species for, uh, for Connie to take a look at. Okay. Incredibly resilient. Okay. Are bats. Okay. Bats and jellyfish. Oh, yes, of course. Jellyfish, yes. Um, and my bet is that <laughs> nature, nature will have to hit this planet really hard in order to get rid of either one of those. And okay. bats, of course, can get, are, are another species and get up and get out above it. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to, before we leave the, the topic of progress and, you know, Ronald Wright's amazing writings and others, uh, John Michael Greer's done a lot with that as well. But yeah. I, I have two quotes that I particularly love on this topic because so much of my own work is about helping people shift from human-centeredness, anthropocentrism, to life-centeredness or ecocentrism. And yep. uh, two of my greatest mentors, William Catton, author of Overshoot, and Thomas Berry, uh, author of The Dream of the Earth and, and uh, The Great Work and others. But Catton writes, human society is inextricably part of a global biotic community. And in that community, human dominance has had and is having self-destructive consequences. Yep. Derek, Derek Jensen wrote a whole book on human supremacy and how self-destructive that is. But Thomas yep. Berry writes along similar lines, the most difficult transition to make is from a human-centered to a life-centered norm of progress. If there's to be any true progress, the entire life community must progress. Any so-called progress of the human at the expense of the larger life community must ultimately lead to a diminishment of human life itself. Right. I like that, but, but I also like the one that I sent you in the email by Ronald Wright himself, because I think it's, 
it expresses that kind of humor. Yes. I think we have to bring a sense of joy and and self-deprecating humor to this as well. And, and his quote, if I can throw it yeah, into the record, it. is it's entirely up to us. If we fail, if we blow up or degrade the biosphere so that it can no longer sustain us, nature will merely shrug and conclude that letting apes run the laboratory was fun for a while, but in the end, a bad idea. Yeah, no, that's just great. That's classic. Um, yeah, and I think that's part of the same thing. Life yeah. will go on. Yeah. And even Straw Dogs uh, concluded basically with that message. He, uh, John Gray's view is that he doesn't think that humans will uh, make the transition, but he's kind of indifferent to that result. And, yeah. and his argument as well is that other forms of life will carry on and thrive and be just as wondrous as the planet has been under our short stay here. Yeah, no question. So another one of the questions that Connie originally framed was she called station, like a person's station where they are. But what name or description do you prefer for pointing to your sense of a deteriorating future? And I use the term the sixth extinction. I like that again because it's kind of paints that wide arc. Um, and that's only the sixth major extinction. Right. Uh, there was a, a mini extinction event that's almost a footnote in the in the history of the planet, during which I understand the human population may have dropped to as few as a few thousand people. Right. And that wasn't even a major extinction event. So yeah, that was a super um, volcano. Yeah. Um, so I like the idea of the sixth extinction and the fact that it's just part of the natural cycles of the planet. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you also like the great migration. Say a little bit about that. Well, I like the idea of the Great Migration because when I tried to figure out when the Ice Ages occurred, because humans were already on the planet during the more, most recent Ice Ages, what did we do then? Because it fascinated me looking at the, even back in Al Gore's uh, charts where he shows the, the temperature of life, the, the last time there was a fluctuation, even anywhere near as large in terms of global average temperature as the one that we're in, in now was during the ice ages and uh, during the ice ages i mean a large part of north america and europe and asia were covered in ice so what happened to the people that lived there yeah. at that time and the best guess is from what they've tracked is that about a third of the people on the planet had to migrate south mm -hmm. in order to and that meant they basically had to give up their culture um, oh, I'm not sure about that because it happens at a, at a pace that allows over, let's say over hundreds of years or sometimes thousands of years. But certainly if you had to move at that pace, your culture, I would imagine your stories and the practices and how to survive and thrive in that particular bioregion surely would have to shift fast. But uh, I don't imagine it. Who knows? I'm just thinking off the top of my head as sort of losing your culture as such. I, it would be interesting to see. I mean, yeah, to yeah. my sense, your culture is based on where you are. And I think as soon as you move to a different ecosystem, a yeah. different environment, um, I mean, one of the big shifts in human uh, evolution was the shift from the forest to the ocean side, where all of a sudden we started to eat fish, uh, which were available in huge numbers and easy to harvest. 
And that changed our whole brain structure. So that yeah. certainly had a cultural impact. So I think culture does change when you live differently in a different place. But yeah, now that you you're saying right. that, yeah, no, I, I'm actually thinking you may be right because, you know, it's Stephen Jenkins in regular talks about, you know, where the bones of your ancestors, the bones of your, uh, right. of, of those who've gone before. And of course, that's one of the things that I just deeply appreciate, again, about Teddy Goldsmith, Edward Goldsmith's perspective, uh, and of many others, is that there's the sense of in sustainable cultures, pro-future cultures that don't are not fouling their own nest, there's a sense of deep continuity with time that your right. ancestors are, they're not just dead because you consult them all the time in your imagination, yep. you know, and the, the future, the, your descendants are also consulted in terms of how to live. You know that, you know, you need to live in a way that's responsible there. So there's that continuity with time that probably right. does shift when you need to move out of a particular bioregion uh, yep. into a whole new area. So my grandparents t told me about what happened during the Great Depression. And during the Great Depression, there was another great migration. And it was from the farms to the cities. Yeah. Um, because ironically, even though the farms were the, probably the most important part of the economy at that time, um, you couldn't make a living selling farm products because we had already moved to a monoculture. So you didn't have enough diversity of crops um, and nobody could afford to buy your your food so millions of farmers left their homes and moved to the cities and a lot of people said that's going to be disastrous the people in the cities are already struggling you know they're not going to be able to to deal with it. it's going to be violence and all kinds of things and you know that didn't happen when you're in a predicament that is larger than anybody um, you learn that the best way to cope is to get along with other people and to work with them and do your best collectively. And that's what, uh, with a few rare exceptions, the Great Depression was a lesson in how, when times get tough, we do pull together, we do the best. And that's why yeah. I see, you know, if this current climate change involves a third of the population, this time moving north, mostly, towards the poles, that's 2 billion people. Um, isn't that going to be an amazing human experience? 2 billion people moving from one subculture to another subculture and working to try to integrate. It's, as I say, it's going to be precarious. But, uh, but Potentially think, exhilarating too. Yeah, but I think we're going to adapt to it the same way that we adapted to the Great Depression, which yeah. is, you know, when... When you're all in the same boat, there's no point in, in you know, whacking other people over the head and throwing them overboard. You, you kind of got to work with what you got. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think we'll do that. And I think that that will be exciting because that that two billion people moving not only will expose them to completely different ways of being and living, but will expose those of us who get encroached upon by their move to different ways of being. And I think in every case where there has been that mixing of different thoughts and ideas and ways of doing and being things, you know, the education and the opening of minds that goes with that, I think will be, will far exceed the, the population stress that that will impose upon us. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we were up in Canada recently, Kanye and I were there in Eastern Canada, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Ontario um, and Quebec, 
for um, about five, six weeks. And I was speaking to one audience and saying, you know, well, you know, if, if, if climate chaos and the jet stream continues to do this wacky stuff and, you know, we see huge numbers of, uh, of uh, you know, people from the South wanting to migrate up into Canada, I mean, you might want to think about having a, a wall on your Southern border and making your Southern neighbor pay for it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> It was a radical idea. It'll never happen. No, <laughs> well, it's kind of hard. Those Great Lakes, it's just damn hard to put a wall around those suckers. You better believe it. Yep. <laughs> Anything you want to say about how sort of you touched on it already, but how this big picture epic of evolution or universe story or sort of large scale ecological and evolutionary sense of things inspires you or supports you? Um, nothing beyond the fact that the larger time frame that you take, the more quantumous I think you can be about the situation that we're in. Everything that is unsustainable collapses, and that's a good thing. If you look at the history of collapse, most collapses have given rise to far more diverse, interesting, and complex things arising that, wouldn't, that weren't possible until that collapse occurred. Yeah, I've, I've got a 15-foot chain of beads, um, my, my great story beads. It's 15 foot if you put the whole thing out, that I sort of wow. wear as, a, as I wear as a stole sometimes in, in uh, religious ceremonies. But each of the beads <laughs> signifies some significant event in the universe story. So I start with the Big Bang, or actually I start with one that looks like a whole bunch of diamonds, all of our different names for ultimacy or mystery or reality or whatever. And then right. I go through all of the significant events in the universe story, including the significant events in my own personal life story, you know, my kid's birth, and, uh, and because those are all part of the, the great story as I experience it. And it helps remind me that myself doesn't stop. This is something I know that you've got some real interest in, but you know, my, my sense of self doesn't stop with the skin, the skin encapsulated ego as Alan Watts used to talk about, but my yeah. sense of self I, is identified with my bioregion, North America, um, you know, uh, the, the earth, planet earth, Gaia, Milky yep. Way, the universe, and so my large, I like the, the nesting doll, Russian nesting dolls, and yep. each, of, each of those is a different sense of self, and yet no less my larger yep. self. And the minute you start to look at things being separate, you end up with, as the, uh, as the famous First Nations expression has it, turtles all the way down. Exactly. <laughs> and I love that expression as well. Yeah. I hope you've got a turtle somewhere in that uh, oh, yes. Hell, hell Mary bead. Uh, yeah, yeah, my cosmic rosary. Not yeah. only do I have a turtle, but the, but the turtle is Turtle Island. I've got, here's my turtle. Oh, great. Fantastic. And this is, the, this is when the, uh, the sea that went right through North America dried up enough so that there was a unified continent of North America, Turtle Island. Well, I want, yeah. I, I want Dave to give you uh, the opportunity to spend a, quite a chunk of time because one of the things that we're kind of in our leading in this is if a person gets to the place of post doom, um, which most of the participants in this course or in this um, conversation series have uh, and are, um, what Paul Trafurka calls finding the gift, like on the other side of the stages of grief and the acceptance, mm -hmm. what is the gift? And, and you've written on that and recently uh, in terms of what we need to remember. I ba this basically came about as a result, first of all, from reading Joanna Macy's work. Uh, that's where the first draft came from. And then um, after a number of years of working with the transition 
uh, Towns movement and meeting and talking with Ben and, and uh, others in transition. Um, I kind of came up with this large list of what we, can, what we can do now, I think I called it at that stage. And as I've learned more and more, I've realized that a lot of those things on the list are naive. It, they're premature mostly. Uh, because it is human nature to only change when we have to. And we're not at that stage yet. There's a, a, a lot of people who are doing some really interesting experiments. If you look at the intentional communities movement, for example, there are, they're doing a, a number of things that will be useful models for us in dealing with the issues coming ahead. But for the most part, we don't have the luxury. Most of us don't have the luxury of actually living in a community anymore and a lot of the things on my list were how to build community and how to learn from each other and how to relearn basic crafts and skills and so on so we would be prepared and i came to the conclusion that's just about as naive as the preppers who are like putting barbed wire around and building underground compounds and so storing vast amounts of food i mean that's ridiculous but it's also ridiculous for us all to go out and learn how to you know, restart fires with, uh, with uh, flint and so on, because we're not, it's not our nature to do things until we're actually forced to change. I, I did learn how to create a bow fire. I, I've got a bow yeah, drill that, I, that Tom Brown taught me how to, how to create fire with sticks. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. and they're liberating too. Learning yeah, some, sure. some basic survival skills is liberating. It makes you realize that we're Although we're domesticated, we, we could probably get by if we weren't anymore. So what I boiled it down to is a list of 10 things, and, and they're all the things that are left. And they basically start from inside. They basically start with trying to know each other, know ourselves better, know what it is that makes us tick, what it is that triggers us, and so on, uh, and being self-aware. So when something triggers us, understanding, okay, that isn't actually anything that this person said to me. It actually relates to something that happened way back in my childhood, and I know that I'm being triggered. And just being aware of that, I think, helps to center you. And we're going to need that in the years to come. So basically, self-knowledge and self-awareness, self-management. I mean, to take care of ourselves it just amazes me. We go, people go into the doctor's office and they say, you know, I've got such and such, fix me. When we have all these resources right. uh, that allow us to self-diagnose and to go at least go into the doctor and say, I think from what I've read, it might be this or this or this. And, you know, I've already tried this. And, um, and just like eating well, um, exercising, just basic self-management techniques. Um, and then instead of worrying about technical skills, really relearning how to grow our own food and so on, which is great if you have a passion for doing that, it's kind of the soft skills, um, the skills of appreciation and curiosity and facilitation and generosity and forgiveness. Those kind of soft skills, I think, are going to be essential. And they're in short supply just because we are so... We're in such a desperate state. We're all kind of at the state now where the, the, the person in charge of the maze has come and taken all of the, most of the food away from the mice. 
Uh, and all of a sudden the mice are like in a frenzied state and that's where we are right now. And so this kind of equanimity, I think, uh, will help and, and that essential soft skill building can help us become more equanimous. Um, spending time outdoors, of course, just moving around. We spend, I can't remember what the average amount of time is people spend in front of, in front of screens, yeah. but it's like, it's shocking. And yeah. it's even, it's worse actually among those over 60. You and I are quite a bit different from, uh, from our peers um, who have become very sedentary, very uh, kind of lost. I think uh, to some extent and spend way too much time watching television and doing other uh, indoor screen focused away from nature activities. Learning how to need less and to share and give more. We've done some in transition on Bowen Island here, we've done some, uh, some sharing circles. And what's fascinating about them is not so much what's actually shared as the discovery of the skills and talents and the excess stuff mm -hmm. that our neighbors have that we can give to each other without any need for reciprocation. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of knowledge and skills and uh, extra stuff that's sitting around. And kind of one of the things that we can do, even if we don't have community, is get to know our neighbors and find out um, what they have that, that, that we can share among ourselves and just learning how to need less, you know. Uh, number seven is finding community. And that's, you know, if you can do intentional community, that's great if you're ready for that and if the people near you are ready for that. But if you aren't, just thinking about the, the ability of the community in which you currently live to deal with what's coming up, to try to decide where you want to live, um, who you want to live with, so that when we reach the stage at which we can't just jump on an airplane. You know, one of the things that I'm thinking about right now is the fact that my kids are thousands of miles away. Yeah. Um, yeah. That doesn't really make sense for the long. I think about the fact that Bowen Island is a volcanic island with very poor soils. And so if the big one hits, which it will, um, or if uh, the government collapses because of economic collapse and, uh, and they won't support a ferry service anymore, um, we're, we're going to be in tough in terms yeah. of being able to provide the food that we need for our own people. Yeah. So figuring out where you want to live and who you want to live with and how you want to make a living in a way that's, that will be sustainable in a, in, during the great migration, as I call it, I think. It's useful to st at least start thinking about. Um, and then the last three things are kind of a little further out there. They're more the external things and just starting to explore what the capacities are of people in your community. What, you know, so that if, if, you're, if you're like me and you hate digging in the ground, I just, you know, but I know a lot of people on Bowen Island who love gardening. And there are a lot of skills and talents that I have that even in a collapse scenario will be useful. Mm -hmm. So I've, we just kind of have an agreement. If this, if this happens, you'll grow the food. <laughs> I'll do this other stuff. Yeah, yeah. And we'll benefit each other and share on that basis.
uh, learning about collapse, and particularly, you know, the reading about, you know, Jared Diamond or Ronald Wright and all of the others who've written about how past civilizations have dealt with things. Read Pierre Burton's book about the Great Depression to see what human nature emerges during times of great struggle. Um, it's quite uplifting and encouraging and, and illustrative and will help prepare us for what we're facing. And finally, the, on the issue of activism, because I have a lot of friends who are activists. I don't think I know anybody that hasn't, has never been arrested, <laughs> uh, which is, I think, a little bit unusual. Although I guess in, in the United States, it's probably, you seem to have a lot more people uh, arrested and in jail than we do. Um, so the idea of pragmatic activism, of kind of picking your fights, making them local winnable things rather than wasting your time writing petitions and and going to demonstrations that you know aren't going to change anything find some find a battle that's worth fighting locally a local dam or on bowen island our big fight right now is with the forestry industry uh, which the provincial government is encouraging it's a key industry in british columbia and uh, the provincial government issued a, an intention to cut down, to clear cut 40% of Bowen Island's forests. 40% of the island. Oh my gosh. The land. Not all in one year. Right, of course. They have, a, they have a 30 year plan for cutting it down and replanting it in monoculture, of course. Um, so all of our trees, the plan is to cut them all down and harvest them. 90% of the trees that, are, that will be cut according to the plan, will be exported to Asia. So that's the other outrageous thing. Not that Asia doesn't have the right to, to, uh, to import what it needs for its own people. But the idea that we're doing this, we're destroying our province's natural beauty, including old growth forests, and we're doing it for export trade, not because it meets right. meet any requirement for ourselves. So finding, finding what's the local battle that's winnable and worth fighting in your own little area is yeah. the 10th of them. And that's kind of it. And it's, as I, I, I call it remembering because I think it is our innate nature to know what, how to live right and what needs to be done. And these things are basically just reminders yeah. of that rather than telling us that we need to or should do or have to do something above and beyond what we're already doing in our incredibly, incredibly busy life. These are not big asks of anyone to ask of themselves. This has been a post-Doom conversation. For more audios and videos of post-Doom conversations and other resources along these lines, go to postdoom.com.